Welcome to Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I'm the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year I have the pleasure of attending events to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as I go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand, from lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering to some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Hello listeners and welcome to the 24th episode of our second season of Pebble in the Pond. In today's world, connection is only a click away, meaning new people and maintaining old relationships has never been easier. But where does our sense of belonging lie in a society that's increasingly reliant on instant gratification and technology? Well, one woman who can help provide insight is Jocelyn Brewer, a Sydney-based psychologist with 16 years experience in public schools as both a teacher and counsellor. Jocelyn is trained in acceptance and commitment therapy as well as cognitive behavioural therapy and uses a range of creative, practical and dynamic techniques to inspire positive change. In 2013, Jocelyn founded the business Digital Nutrition to address digital wellbeing issues and our love-hate relationship with technology. Via a selection of presentations, consultations and therapy sessions, Digital Nutrition aims to help individuals to better understand the cognitive, social and emotional impacts of the digital content we consume and the way that digital devices impact our overall physical and mental health. Digital Nutrition was awarded the New South Wales Premier's Teacher's Scholarship for Health Education in 2014 and Jocelyn toured the USA in 2015 to investigate work happening in this emerging intersection of digital health and well-being. Tune in to hear more about Jocelyn's tips and techniques to use digital content wisely and discover how the underlying desire of belonging is being met through technology compared to other means used in the pre-internet era. Hello listeners and thanks uh, Jocelyn, thanks very much for coming on board uh, the podcast today. Lovely to chat to you. Yeah, it's great to um, to be able to find time to have a chat with you and, and find out everything that you've been up to. I know you haven't been idle, you've been very busy over the last <laughs> decade or two actually it looks like. Tell us tell us a little bit about your background because I, I know you're obviously a, a psychologist now and you're doing a lot in this space, um, especially as it relates to technology, but tell us where did the journey start? I mean, you're at university doing a teaching degree, is that is that where you, where you first started your professional career? No, I actually did an arts degree first. Um, I'm one of those people who is a massive, massive supporter of the humanities. And I would actually classify myself first and foremost a geographer. I learned to be a geographer kind of accidentally when I was six. And I went to Papua New Guinea with my grandparents to visit my aunt and uncle who were working there for one of the big accounting firms. And I discovered so much about the world and my curiosity with people and how we interact. Um, both with our environments and each other, I think, really was fostered at that point. So I did things like three-unit geography in my HSC 25 years ago. And I actually wanted to be a vet. Um, I found out oh. you needed 97 
uh, in HSC to be a vet and I gave up on myself and went, I'm not that clever. I'm never going to get that. Um, and kind of floundered. Yeah. So, <laughs> I tell this story um, a lot to my teenage clients because I think sometimes there's a sense that, you know, successful people know what they want to do. Yeah. Um, and, and I really kind of floundered mostly um, until I ended up after my arts degree um, becoming a teacher of, you know, geography and um, performance studies because I did a, um, or drama, I did drama, a performance yeah. studies major. Yeah. So I had this really interesting combination of things, which I guess I was like, what is this ever going to add up to? I think my mum was very worried. <laughs> and um, yeah, it, I finally, sorry. Oh, I was going to say, it's so true though, isn't it? Like when you finish year 12, you all of a sudden you're expected to sort of have an idea about what you want to do professionally, isn't it? Isn't that right? And there's a bit of pressure. Oh, a lot of pressure. Um, so, you know, I think that's the joy of things like arts degrees where you really explore lots of different, yeah. um, I guess, multidisciplinary aspects of the world and how the world works. So, um, yeah, I, it was only after when I was about 23, 24 that I did my DPED and I was teaching for about five years and then I got a scholarship to become a school counsellor. So I did my psych um, kind of major and um, internship and became a psychologist through the New South Wales Department of Ed. So in about 2008. So, um, so it, that's how yeah. that's how it all got into it. So you started with mm -hmm. the the diped stuff. You're doing teaching for five years. What mm -hmm. what prompted you to want to get into the psychology side, other than obviously winning your scholarship as a as a counsellor? Yeah, what, um, what drove that passion? For me, it was always um, making more of a difference um, and and working out where I could make the biggest impact. So I actually started teaching because I was working in call centres and I actually managed um, a multilingual call centre for um, Centrelink. Really? So at that point, you know, I was dealing with lots of people who were having a really, really tough time. And for me, education was the, the kind of um, way forward and, and the, the thing that could make a difference. And then I realised people with mental health issues and people who had vulnerabilities to that, had trauma experiences, that was like really where we needed to get to. So it was just this evolution of like, okay, and, and how can I make more of a difference and more of a difference or what's that next level? Um, so, and then the, I guess the, the cyber psychology stuff also kicked off when I was retraining because um, I had to do a research project and the principal of the school that I was teaching at said, you should work out what's going on with kids and games. Like there is a really big thing happening with a bunch of our boys around that. Um, so that's, that's how that kicked off as well. Isn't that interesting? So you got a teaching to be able to, obviously through your passion of, of geography, but then also wanting to be able to make a bit more of a difference. And then that led you down then the path of the counselor side of things mm -hmm. and then into the psychology. Yeah. That's yeah. It. Wow. Yeah. That's and lots of experiences along the way, like I actually got roles by three teenage girls when I was 29. What? First time. First time I think I'd ever kind of had an experience like that. Um, and I did a lot of traveling around, you know, I lived in the western suburbs of Sydney, traveling around late at night on public transport. And that was literally the bang over the head that had me go, yeah, I'm on the right path with counseling. I'm on the right path with, with doing this. So wow. lots of little lessons along the way that, you know, here I am. <laughs> was it like a scary interaction, a dangerous interaction? Oh, it, was, or was it, it, it was like physical. 
pretty violent. Oh. I had, um, yeah, a pretty bad black eye and oh, some wow. scratches and, and things like that. And I was actually going to my best friend's wedding the next day. So I had to rock up to a wedding with a black eye and um, oh. bruised head and things like that and, and go to court and all of those sorts of things. So, um, yeah, wow. very interesting experience. So that's uh that is, that is interesting it's not you're not too many times you hear that someone um you know has encountered a situation like that although i do hear that that sort of stuff does happen regularly yeah. but I, um that's really interesting so yeah. so so tell us then the principal put you on the path to studying or researching the link mm-hmm. between gaming or technology and and kids is that is that how you sort of started your um uh, your endeavor into the cyber psychology space with predominantly the link with kids and and technology yeah basically it was what i realized when i started looking into that space was i guess the pandora's box that we were opening at the time too so this is about 2008 um we had the digital education revolution where we were handing out laptops to basically every single kid in australia when they hit year nine um there wasn't a great deal of i guess I mean, there's always been great um, IT teachers and people who are, are sort of pioneers in how to use that well, but teachers really went upfield on how to use technology effectively. I, I think even now in my work, we see a lot of parents, uh, uh, teachers who are, are really kind of like, okay, well, what do we what do we do with this? And it's so different across the different subject areas. So I guess I just kind of kept um, connected and I started using things like Twitter and LinkedIn to find the people who were doing the work all around um, the world, actually. Uh, I met locally Dr. Philip Tam, who was um, a psychiatrist uh, over at Rivendell, who's in private practice um, now. He was one of the the first, I guess, people in Australia talking about internet addiction um, in that way. So um, Dr. Wayne Warburton over at Macquarie Uni. So just really kind of resourcing myself with, with who was here. Um, and thinking more broadly, it wasn't just games at that point. We are thinking about social media and the internet itself as being, you know, inverted commas, addictive, um, and what was happening as then the smartphone, um, you know, kind of really exploded. Uh, and, and just the kind of what I talk about is being digital colonisation. You know, there's really very few parts of our life where we're not interfacing with screens for some reason. Yeah, 100%. And when you look back to pre-internet life, I mean, mm-hmm. how different how, how different has this been? I mean, there's the obvious ones with obviously everyone, not everyone had computers. In fact, no one had computers, I guess, uh, mm-hmm. for, for a large majority of growing up with grandparents and whatnot. But how do you, you look at the pre-internet life and then compare it to today growing up mm-hmm. as, for kids? Look, when I work with teenagers, a lot of the things that they're doing, um, okay, sure, the the technology that they're using is like super powered, but some of the things that they're doing, like the the, the less good stuff sometimes, like the, you know, being distracted by being on social media, that was the equivalent for me, you know, literally 25 years ago, passing notes in class. Um, You can ban a smartphone in a school and you will just find kids on laptops, on Google Docs, having the same kind of conversations that they would on Snapchat. Um, so obviously the method um, is different and it's much more ubiquitous um, and technology is obviously both pervasive and persuasive. Um, but some of our underlying needs are exactly the same and the underlying need is to be connected and to feel a part of something, to belong. Uh, and that, I guess, is why technology um, 
is blamed for so many <laughs> things yeah. is because that is a central way that we we feel a sense of belonging, whether it's in games, being able to be good at gaming, whether it's with your um, you know community in social media platforms. Um, that need to belong is exactly the same as it was, you know, for me at school, for my mum at school, my grandmother when she was at school. Yeah. Albeit, you know, she only went to school until she was in year nine. So, um, yeah, yeah, there's a, there's a lot that's similar, I guess, and we overlook that because it feels so different. Um, you know, a lot of parents are just like, well, I didn't have that when I was growing up. Um, you hear that and, all the time, the, don't you? Yeah, a sense of nostalgia for... Um, our own childhoods and, and I guess when we look back at our own childhoods how differently we look at them compared to um, I guess our kids and, and the kids today that, um, that, that that nostalgia is a really big piece of where some of the narrative around kids and technology comes from um, there's a really fantastic book called um, The New Childhood by Jordan Shapiro which is a really okay. fantastic look at all the like what's going on in that space he's one of the best people to read when it comes to breaking down um some of these things around you know i guess what's different and what's the same the new childhood okay got, mm. got that so do, do you look at it and say i mean because there's some especially in this space there seems to be three big factors there's obviously the, the kids themselves growing up with it and and how they're relating to it but then you also have parents who mm-hmm. i guess are going through this as well thinking well how do we do this as a parent and make sure that we're trying to bring our kid up in the best possible way we can? And then you got teachers as well, I guess, trying to trying to cope with it or people in the community trying to also mm-hmm. deal with it. So how do you find the balance between them and do you think that it's challenging more so in one part than another? Yeah, look, it's a really good question because I think historically it's been all the adults looking at the kids going, oh, we've got to save the children from, you know, the zombie apocalypse that's coming because we're looking at devices and not each other and all that kind of stuff. But increasingly what kids report to me um, is that their parents are having difficulty getting off technology themselves. Yeah. And that might not be because they're, you know, scrolling Instagram and, you know, posting about doing yoga on Balinese holidays or something. <laughs> it's actually because the lines between um, work and leisure and the, the off switch is very, very blurred. Yeah. So, you know, there's that sense of having to, I guess, look good at work and be responsive and reply to things and keep on top of stuff. So what we see is, and, and again, this applies to teachers, there is no, um, you know, you leave your work at work, everything follows you with your phone um, while your phone has things like your work email on it. So when it comes to actually shaping young people's behaviour with technology in a healthful way, it really needs to start from a family perspective. Um it really needs to start from mum and dad, maybe, or both your mums or both your dads or whoever's in your family, looking at um, what they're doing with technology and whether or not they're getting the balance right. Um, many of us would say, no, I'm not exercising enough. I'm not reading as many books as I would like to. Mm. Um, so it can't just be this top down of kids, it's just as easy as unplugging kids and 30 minutes a day is you know, enough. It's actually much more complex than that. Yeah, I mean, and especially when they're, I guess, going to kindergarten and getting iPads and mm-hmm. and whatnot at such an early age. Uh, I mean, all that counts towards their screen time amount that they use. So they're really being introduced to this stuff quite a, at an early age, aren't they? 
That's right. And, you know, technically screen time for, for education is not counted in screen time. Uh, mm. It's only screen time for leisure. But my question always about that is, well, why not? Because if you're using an iPad or you're using some kind of screen, then there is the potential for eye strain. Mm. There is the potential for the displacement of the daylight, um, which we know develops the optic nerve and which can help prevent myopia. Um, why don't adults have screen time limits is another of my questions when it comes to screen time. Screen time is a really funny one. It's kind of something that's gotten stuck, like um, the idea of digital native. Um, we don't have food time. We don't talk about food time. We don't say, oh, you've had 30 minutes to eat your breakfast. That's enough food time. We look at what you're eating. We look at whether or not there's nutrients and, you know, the calorie balance and all of those sorts of things. So, um you know, the, the early introduction, I guess, is one of the areas that I'm really fascinated about. I'm actually writing a course for toddler um, tech use at the moment because um, it is getting earlier and earlier and we are concerned, I guess, about brain development, language acquisition and things like that when it comes to those really little ones, mm. um, as well as the tantrums and the ability for, for kids to come off technology when it's time to, you know, literally finish because you can't spend, you know, 16 hours a day on that. So, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and that's before I start my rant about, you know, the kind of technology that's expected within schools and, and the way that um, I guess, you know, sometimes parents have no choice about whether or not their child brings a, brings a device or what kind of device that they're bringing. And these devices are not cheap, you know. We're talking no. about a thousand bucks. Um, and again, some really great research. Um, a piece in the monthly just recently from a journalist called Anna Creer. Um, all about, you know, the way that these tech companies get into schools and, you know, develop teachers as, you know, insert big tech company, endorsed teacher or, you know, classify, classify all these teachers as, as having extra qualifications for their ability to use their products within their school. Um, I find that pr much more scary than boys playing video games, to tell you the truth. Wow. There's, there's so much to think about, though, isn't there? It is, yeah. It's such a broad topic. And again, that multidisciplinary um, approach that I guess I've had for a very long time is really relevant here because yeah. I guess when we look at cyber psychology, we're not just looking at a very narrow set of things. We're looking at you know human behavior being influenced in so many different ways, mm. um, not purely, you know, I guess, just our mental health, but our overall kind of well-being, our media literacy, you know, how that influences things like our democratic processes, which we're, we're seeing at the moment. You mentioned... In a big way. Yeah, well, that's true. But you mentioned earlier about, the, you know, the really young kids, toddlers and, and infants, or not mm -hmm. infants, but using, getting access to screen time, uh, maybe infants, I, I'm not sure. Tell, tell me, I mean, because you don't, as a parent, you don't really get any education around this, but it's something that you're mostly, a lot of parents are really concerned about is what age to introduce them to, what shows should they be doing, is it no good for their brain mm -hmm. development. I mean, there's really not much, um, by the way, of really, you know, when you're a parent and you learn about giving birth to the child and also, you know, how to do all that stuff, the prenatal stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's there's not really much there for after you have the child, is there? No, and that's, that's a really big point that I make quite regularly, that it's, you know, once you kind of do all that perinatal stuff and you maybe get your kid home and you get past the first three months, it's kind of crickets. And I think there's still a lot of stigma um, when parents need extra support and put their hands up for extra support. It's, um, 
uh, yeah, a little bit tricky, I guess, you know, sleep training and all of those sorts of things, maybe there's some support for, but when it comes to like, how do we do the rest of this really complicated thing? Um, sometimes I think there's reticence around needing to get support because it kind of means that your kid's not inverted commas normal. Um, mm. So, you know, increasingly though, I think parents are realizing that they do need support around things like how do we wrangle technology? And there is no, I guess, you know, for me, there is no one rule book because yeah. there's so many factors that contribute to the values within a family, um, you know, your confidence with technology, your confidence with, um, you know, other activities, um, where you live. If you live in, you know, inner city, Sydney or Melbourne, um, in high-rise apartments, then screens are going to do a lot of um, that, <laughs> that kind of entertaining work yeah. because we're not planning cities so that we have green spaces. Um, you know, all of that is really being, again, a geography kind of thing is really being shaped. Our, our psychology is being shaped about, by our cities. Um, yeah, that's interesting, it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, lots of complexity there. And, you know, with parenting, um, everybody has their own styles and their own values, so it's very dif- difficult. And, you know, I see a lot of people come in and kind of try and um, tell people how to parent, and, and for me it's much, much more about um saying, here's some skills, here's some ideas, here's some stuff around how the brain works. How can you go and create a recipe for what works in your family and for what you know is going to um, kind of work with the logistics of your life? Mm. Yeah, because it's quite overwhelming really with all this stuff out there and you're sort of like, well, you know, here's some parents doing this and they're not doing this and mm-hmm. you're like, you all of a sudden start getting that anxiety over, oh, maybe we should be doing this instead of that. And, um, That's right. Uh, and then we, where do we seek help? Funnily enough, you know, usually on social media. Um, a lot of the, you know, mum's groups, the parenting groups, the online groups, the, you know, those sorts of things become this new sort of source of village information. Um, I guess we're really lucky in Australia that we do have the eSafety Commission, um, which was started five years ago as the Office of the um, Children's eSafety Commission and has now broadened its scope to really look at, you know, a range of issues from women in tech spaces, safety by design, all the way through to um, reporting image-based abuse and, and cyberbullying and things like that. So that's my go-to source for most information in this space. Um, I, I guess, you know, the e-safety and the online safety is one piece and I kind of, not that I stick away from that, but my work is slightly different. Yeah. That. So hugely um, complex area. Yeah. No, well, I'm keen to share more about what you do um, shortly as well because I know mm-hmm. that you're doing some really amazing sp- uh, stuff in this space. What do you think are the, are the key challenges for kids growing up in this day and age? Oh, golly. Um in a in a COVID era, I guess it's just kind of keeping connected as well, like um, keeping keeping occupied uh, without, as, as I guess we're talking about relying on screens. Yeah. Um, I, I think uh, our sense of friendship and connection and and that kind of mateship sometimes gets a little bit um, distorted and changed by um, the different ways that we are socialising and, and connecting. Um, you know, when I was growing up, we um, we had a slippery dip that was backed up 
to a trampoline and a trampoline which was just like the old school trampoline, none of these kind of caged creatures. <laughs> and we just have half the neighborhood over jumping around on that trampoline and jumping off the back of the slippery pontu the trampoline, um, cubby houses, all of that sort of stuff. And again, the nostalgia you can hear coming out. Um, there's nothing to say that that doesn't, that can't still happen. Mm. Um, but there are logistics around that. For instance, lots of kids are overscheduled. They're running from, you know, karate to violin to Italian to tutoring. Um, there's several family, you know, several kids in a family. Mum and dad have their own stuff going on. Um, life is busy. Um, and, and I think that's probably one of the biggest impacts on kids is how, how kind of busy life always feels. That overstimulation. Yeah, like that, that sense of doing nothing is not valued in our society. Being busy is a badge of honour. Um, and we have all, I think, become a little bit addicted to busy. You, you know, how many people when you say, oh, how are you doing? Oh, I'm super busy. The nature of friendship and, and, you know, adult friendships is changing. And I think that puts really different pressure on, on parents to do the parenting um, as well. So, um, you know, adding add in a bit of a global pandemic and there's a bit of, a, you know, a recipe for that disconnection um, and forgetting. I was, I was even, you know, talking to some clients on the weekend and somebody said to me, you know, I feel like I've forgotten how to talk to people. Wow. Um, you would think it would be like riding a bike, but there is that kind of distance that sometimes we feel. Were they saying that in relation to being uh, isolated in COVID or was it due to, you know, being on social media more so than actually having... Yeah, more, more isolation, more more when, you know, you, you finally have people around for that barbecue or whatever that, you know, it's kind of like, oh, here you are, another human standing, talking to me. And it's not that brief encounter either. Like we've all kind of been to the supermarket where we're all really kind of aware of our space and all, all that kind of stuff. It's much more like, okay, let's sit down and have this chat. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I think we get we get stuck in our heads a lot too sometimes. You know, there, there was um, a really good article I read a while ago just, just about the importance of kids being bored and the mm. development that happens during that um, during that phase when they're sitting mm-hmm. down just creating their own play or, um, I mean, yeah. is that something that you're, you're sort of alluding to before as well? Like just it's good for them to be bored? Yeah, it's good for them to not have high levels of stimulation in order to feel um you know that they're doing stuff mm. so i mean the boredom thing is sometimes a little bit tricky because we don't want to sit a kid in an empty room and say we'll just go be with your thoughts like yeah. that's never going to be fun for anyone but um i bought a new dryer the other day and you can imagine that the box that the dryer came in has been a source of great amusement in our house <laughs> of my three-year-old for the last week um you know, we have chickens, so chickens are always a source of amusement. Um, having other things, which is like the stock standard, I guess, ex- expectation, like you go and do those things first and the screens are like the top shelf um, activity that you do. And, and I guess screens, I'm talking about, um, you know, iPads and, and interactive computer stuff, not just your fancy smart TV that's on the wall. Um, you know, that those things are really special things that you reserve that you really like and enjoy and um but they're not kind of um, you know, overdone, I guess. You think of it like a treat. And mm. and I guess that's where my analogy with nutrition and calling it digital nutrition comes in is that, you know, this is something that we want to use quite sparingly in really intentional and intelligent ways. 
it's not the first thing that you do in the morning and the last thing that you do at night. And if it is, we need to kind of examine some of the impacts. Um, you know, I know a lot of adults that, you know, are on their phone, first thing, last thing, bookending their day. Um, and certainly that's setting up expectations for our kids that that, that might be how things work them too. Um, yeah. So, you know, boredom is great, but creative boredom. Um, because actually what happens sometimes when kids are bored is they get into mischief um, and then they get into trouble. So, you know, a bit of a Lord of the Flies mm. style example. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. We still have a responsibility to help them learn how to be creative and how to have that fun. Um, we kind of can't, you know, like we used to play in the backyard and you'd only kind of come inside when you were hungry, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, kids can get bored on, on devices too. <laughs> yeah well yeah so and and that is that a healthy thing to get to that point to let them and, and they almost go off the device is that how it works or is it uh look it can work in two different ways so sometimes people come to me um in my private practice because they're having a really tough time of keeping their kids off technology totally and they're finding that you know they've had really strict limits and the kid is then getting quite mischievous with how they go about sneaking the device or sneaking their way into things. So at that point, I would say sometimes actually showing them what is there and not making it so salacious and so kind of woo, mm. exciting to get your hands on can be useful. Um, but, you know, ultimately it's not the device that's interesting. It's the apps and the internet connectivity that makes that device interesting. So, you know, you can hand a kid a device, but if you don't have the Wi-Fi password and you don't have the app that will game that they want to play downloaded, then it's probably not particularly useful to them. Mm. So that, again, is a conversation about, um, you know, what you what you download, why you're downloading it, who else is playing, all those sorts of things. Um, one of the activities that I have is to get kids to do their own due diligence on what they want to play. So if you've got, you know, a 12-year-old who is desperate to play the newest game, well, go and, go and write me a report on who wrote, who made that game, what the, plan, like what the purpose of the game is, um, how much money they make, how the loot boxes work, how, you know, all of those sorts of things so that, that kids are actually doing some of their own due diligence to understand what they're playing rather yeah, than just having idea. that, well, the kid up the road's playing it and you're a terrible mother if you don't let me download it yeah. and kind of give in because you don't want to be that mum. Well, that's typically what you're dealing with, isn't it? I mean, but that's the way you just put that is to actually almost let them go do the research, come back and present it to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because that's what we should be doing. You know, if they're not doing it, we should be doing that. We shouldn't be just going, oh, well, it's really popular on the app store, so it must be really good. Um, you know, those popularity ratings are, are really problematic. So we don't have a good credentialing system for the 2 million apps that are out there, you can, you know, we could make up an app today and just say it was educational, but it might walk and talk a lot like a poker machine. And a lot of the games are actually being made by um, some of the companies that are involved in, you know, pokies and gaming and things like that. So Is that right? Um, we really need to be aware, yeah, of, of what we download and what we're consuming that way. Um, I, I think, again, there's, just so much choice out there, so much peer pressure with kids and so much, so many parents going, oh, well, it couldn't be that bad, could it? Um, that there's not sometimes some of that awareness and kind of carefulness around that. You know, many parents will say to me, oh, Fortnite, oh, my gosh, I wish I'd never let them download that. And I'm like, well, you know, next time the next Fortnite's coming up, what are you going to do differently? Yeah. Because there's always going to be the hottest new thing. 
Um, and the underground app or, you know, online thing to do, juicy thing to do, that parents kind of, it's not about, you know, knowing what it is, like knowing what the, the next naughty apps that underage kids are using. It's actually about what you're going to, um, how you're going to get them to appraise whether or not that's a good idea. It's so, it's so yeah. simple, but it's, uh, I mean, because the first thing you want to do as a parent is just jump in and say, no, you're not going to be doing that. Um, I don't mm-hmm. care what your mates are doing. But it's yeah. it's going to that next level by getting, say, okay, well, you show me the research, you show me all the points mm-hmm. of why you should do it and show me some points of why probably you shouldn't do it and then we mm-hmm. can look at it. Do you make that decision yeah. together or does the does the child or the kid still have the ability to have the decision? Well, look, I think ultimately parents have right of veto. Parents are there to say, actually, my executive decision is no, you're not having that yet. Yeah. Um, or, you know, maybe you would like to write to that company and ask them for more better parental controls. And when they put the parental controls in, yeah, let's, let's review that. So something like TikTok has changed their parental controls and changed some of their features. So I would be much more likely to let my 13 or 14-year-old get that now that they have those features. Yeah. So again, it's kind of being a little bit in the know and, um, you know, most of the really great organisations around the place from eSafety Commission to, you know, Kira Pendergast that's safe on social have great, easy cheat sheets to go, okay, this is the update, this is where we're at, this is what we should do. Yeah. Um, but also just get on there and, like, play it yourself. Um, some of the homework or home play that I give to parents in my sessions is, like, go and download a game and play and notice how a hard it is and b that your kid has been completely committed to learning to failing to learning to failing and improving on that and there's a lot that we can learn from that um kind of dedication to games and how kids tick when they're in those spaces that we can then use in our parenting and get them to you know practice their handwriting or do the annoying maths that they you know don't like yeah so the and, that, and that's the the deeper learning behind these, like what you just mentioned about trying and failing and then trying again and failing and coming up with different solutions and trying again. And I mean, you don't really typically think about that when you think of gaming, do you? Well, I, I'm sorry, you no. probably do. I don't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like a lot of people see kids gaming and go, oh, what a lazy bugger. You yeah. Know? He's, he's throwing his life away. What a slacker. Uh, um you know, and, and for me, I see kids, no kid ever plays a game at 80% um, effort. Yeah. They play all out every time they pick up their console. Right? Um, that the game is pitched. There's a thing called self-determination theory, which you might be familiar with. That they have autonomy, they have competence, and they have connectedness. And those three things, when it kind of comes together in a game, is what keeps people wanting to keep playing mm. and I've had school principals who I've suggested to them that maybe they should go and suss out what is really going on in Grand Theft Auto who come back to me and say oh my gosh I just love smashing these cars up it is so <laughs> cathartic um you know and you can you can play again the geography needs to come out in this but you know when I play Grand Theft Auto I get somebody to take me to Manhattan Beach where there's a really fantastic salad shop that I love. When I go to LA, I, I go to Manhattan Beach and um, eat salad at this fantastic little cafe. So you don't actually have to rape prostitu- um, uh, kill prostitutes and not pay them. <laughs> um, when you play Grand Theft Auto, you can kind of usurp and, and mess with the gameplay and just travel around um, LA. Like, 
as a geography teacher, I would be using that to do an excursion of LA. Mm. Um, you know, I play another game called Red Dead Redemption 2, and it's a cowboy kind of game where you, you know, ride around and stick them up and steal stuff and get loot and all that kind of stuff. I love riding horses. I live in Sydney and I can't ride enough horses. So I just get a horse and I ride around the American countryside and it is beautiful. Um, does it have Don't therapeutic benefits to, to your brain? Does it have that therapeutic, like, does it feel like you're doing it and, and does it seem it, like it's... It does. Like, it feels like because the graphics in these things are so good, um, if you have a half-decent and big TV, the mm. graphics in these games are incredible. Um, the horses are beautiful. There is that kind of sense of losing yourself and choosing, like, literally sometimes getting lost, but... Um, choosing where to go and do I want to go over that hill? Do I want to go this way? Do I want to, you know? Um, and again, I ignore all of the things that I should be doing in the game to get points or to be successful. Um, <laughs> and, you know, like I don't go and kill the deers and trade the deer skins or whatever. Um, my partner does all of that. Um, I just ride around on my beautiful horse at the moment. It's a Palomino. Um, yeah. <laughs> so... You know, that, that can be a way that we do it as well. That's a really good point. So so it's not necessarily about going extreme and just saying, listen, no gaming, no games, you're addicted, get off. It's about looking mm-hmm. at it and saying, well, how do, how else can we use this to teach them lessons? Um, but then also looking at other things, I assume, like time and the habits and what they're doing when they're on there. Is that... Is that also a key part of just trying to look at this? Absolutely, yeah. So from the digital nutrition perspective, I would be looking at what game they're playing, what the purpose of that game is. So many kids think they're first-person shooter games, but the aim or third-person shooter games sometimes, but the aim is just to shoot everything that moves. Uh, there is a movement of games called Games for Change or um, Serious Games, which are all about having, I guess, a, a story and a narrative that's much more pro-social educational interesting um it's not just kind of i guess the hollywood style big name games that you've probably heard of it's like indie indie games like the indie film industry Mm. you probably haven't heard of them because what you know their their entire budget is probably the marketing budget of some of the the big games so got a little tedx talk that I, i talk about serious games and games for change as being potentially digital superfoods but also recognizing that for many kids games is just like hanging out at the skate park or the mall or sitting on town hall steps for those of you in the 90s who you know that's where we met up um it it is a social place it is um i guess social capital it's 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 where you hang out um it's not necessarily about fortnite as a game anymore it'll be awed with fortnite and and, you know a battle royale kind of game um it's just because that's where everyone is lots of kids you know study and chat and catch up and debrief and all sorts of things in, you, in those games. Do you find the extreme of gaming is where their reality becomes the game itself? Uh, look, the extreme of gaming is usually because there's an escapism that happens, usually yeah. um, from, from a clinical perspective. So for kids that we might these days diagnose with gaming disorder, it might be because there's an um, – a, a catalyst incident, um, you know, that could be in transition to a high school that goes wrong, parents separating, yeah, grief right. and loss, trauma, whatever, that isn't dealt with particularly well and the kids play the game and the game helps them feel better uh, and addresses some of those unmet needs. And then going back to that game and continuing to have those positive experiences is much easier than dealing with 
whatever's going on for you. So usually it is that escape, like not processing your feelings, not processing the stuff that's really there that ends up turning into what, you know, at least on the surface looks like an addiction to the game, but it's actually a massive avoidance of the pain that's there usually. Mm. Um, and look, that it, that's not always the case, but in many cases of kids who maybe haven't been going to school for several terms and are playing games and aggressive as soon as anyone tries to change the game play habits, um, there is usually an underlying vulnerability. Um, sometimes it's a you know, another diagnosis, it can be, you know, neurodiversity of various forms, um, you know, and different layers of stuff going on. So, yeah. Well, I think addiction to games is, is not a useful term. I recognise that it yeah. can be seriously problematic for, you know, a, a, probably about 5% of people. And when you take, we're still we're still working. Yeah, still getting the research. No, that's, that's fair enough because it's one of those things, I guess, when you're researching it, some of these interactions are just a virtual existence of what they were doing anyway. So I guess your point there is that, I mean, they're just changing the mode on which they're interacting now. Mm -hmm. um, but do you, is there a ranking or is there some sort of priority or a level of which one is probably better for you than another? Do you... What, what do you like, mean? like, I mean, like, obviously, if we look at pre-internet days, when you that you, you talk about the underlying need of belonging, mm -hmm. uh, and now we're getting that connection, uh, or some will say disconnection, but I mean, through mm -hmm. social media, even mm -hmm. though the underlying needs now are getting met differently, would you say that a face-to-face -face conversation is is probably better for them in in a list of? How, oh yeah, I get what you mean. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like the the mode of which that connection is made. Yeah, um, look, it, it's tricky. Then there's, there's even within um, computer-mediated communication, different layers within that, like, you know, obviously well, we're using the good old phone right now so we can have a live conversation um, mm. back and forth. Um, doing that is probably better than texting back and forth and having video conferencing obviously gives you a whole range of other nonverbal communication um, cues to help you process that. So while... I guess nothing beats the face-to-face -face. Um, and that experience of just being physically present to another human being, um, looking them in the eyes, being able to kind of really read all of those cues in person. Um, video conferencing and social media and all of those other ways that we connect can fill in the gap. Mm. Um, and the example that I give there is when we're trying to find our like-minded folks so if you are living in a rural or remote community and you're the only person who's into a particular form of anime or fan fiction or something like that, that space, that online space helps you find your tribe and can be incredibly useful for that belonging, um, to bridge that belonging when you don't have the opportunity to do face-to-face. -face. But if we're relying on that and then not, you know, for instance, I, I've met lots of people on social media. Um, someone's actually my best friends I've met on Twitter. Yeah. And many times when I go traveling, if I'm in, when I did go traveling, I would meet up with these people um, in the in the city that they were in. So I got a scholarship um, to go and investigate this stuff five years ago. And I went all over the state and met up with all of the people that I'd been talking to on Twitter for the last couple of years. So I guess the thing is, if you 
are using computers, but then when you're walking down the street and you see a person that you've chatted to but don't speak to them face-to-face, I think that's where we have a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we collect fans or followers like baseball cards, but we don't actually interact with those people when it's, you know, their birthday or, I don't know, you're in the same town or you have some sort of crossover, there becomes that weird physical, you know, distance. So... It's really about how you use it. There's no right or wrong, better or worse. I guess it's the yeah. combination given the context that you're in. It's a really good distinction because you're right. Uh, what feels like it makes sense to me that it, it can actually be a tool that can really help you and create a stronger connection or even make introductions that you wouldn't have otherwise had. And that's right. And if you think even how you and I have met, like I've mm. never physically met you, but yeah. you know, we can have quite, complex and deep conversations without having had you know necessarily had done that and how did we get put in contact again the internet and connections that were made through that yeah um you know so i I think we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater but we do want to recognize that you know how do we stay human in a digital age is well we we kind of keep that consciousness on our communication and the relationships that we build and we make sure that they're as rich and um, holistic as we possibly can yeah, no, that's that's important, and uh, and I love the way you just framed that. What's when we talk about modeling, we go back to parents um, and kids model parents' behavior. To what extent does that impact their behavior? So big, so huge. I was reading a New York Times article the other day. I got actually here. Parents are digital hypocrites. Adults think they're setting limits, but inadvertently teach kids to overuse gadgets. Um, <laughs> you know, like. I, I think that it's the monkey see, monkey boo kind of aspect of things um, and a lot of it implied, um, you know, I'm really conscious of how I use my, my phone around my kids, mm. um, not just because I'm distancing myself from her because I'm trying to get a million things done while she's watching, you know, Emma Wiggle for the gazillionth time, mm. um, but I'm, I'm kind of signalling to her that this thing is more important than being with her. And then if I want to film her every time she does something cute, well, A, I'd just be filming her 24-7 because she's just the most (laughs) hilarious, gorgeous little thing. But it interrupts that kind of spontaneity. Mm. And what we see with many kids, and she'll do a dance for me and then she'll say, Mommy, can I watch the video? Right? So she knows that she's performing so that can be shared. Mm. And that in itself is just really, I I guess, um, transforming her spontaneity and her um, way of responding in the moment. Um, yeah, so I, I think the, the role modelling isn't just like whether or not I'm constantly on my phone, it's how I use my phone then to, to capture her or to, you know, do yeah. all those different things. So one, one of the um, strategies that's suggested by a, la- by a lady called um, Dana Boyd, uh, who wrote a really great book called um, It's Complicated about kids and technology. Oh, it's probably coming up to a decade ago. She talks about narrating your parenting or narrating what you're doing with your phone. So if I go and pick up my phone, I say, I've just got to go and check the weather. So I've got to work out whether we should take our raincoat to the park. Or I'm just going to go and see whether daddy's texted what time and he's gone pick him up at the train station. The kids get a really good sense that our phones or our laptops or whatever are actually not just these sources of games and fun and relief. <laughs> they actually have a whole bunch of utilities that are helping our lives and hopefully helping our lives become a lot easier. Yeah. Um, so simple things like that where, again, that not only 
calls out to them what we're doing, but calls out to us whether or not when we do go to check the weather, we also check all of the notifications on WhatsApp and try and catch up with that and then forget to check the weather and go to the park without the raincoats anyway. Mm. Um, and, it's you know, the design of that is, you know, if you don't have your notifications on or you're really good with, you know, wrangling, again, your phone specifically, some of the hacks that you can do with your phone, then you might uh, avoid the, the traps of, you know, stuck on it yeah no that's that's uh, that makes sense and that's a great little tip with the uh, we spoke earlier uh, about um you know the the line that gets blurred between work and uh and social media or work and and say uh, downtime on the screen Mm -hmm. um as a parent and some and probably most people who have been at home over the covid uh and just constantly on zooms and on the computer all day as far as modeling for your kids, but then all of a sudden you want some downtime, go to the phone. Is it any different to them being on their screen during the day at school and then coming home to want their downtime as well? Because I'm conscious of that modeling, I guess, so they might see that. Yeah, and and again, that's just like the fact that these screens and devices um, are used for everything, you know. It's it's not like the the textbook that for geography just use it for that subject because it actually is the portal to your learning and your leisure or your work and your leisure. That's where it gets quite tricky. Um, yeah. We don't know when kids, when we see kids on, on um, devices, we don't, or, you know, anyone on devices, we don't really know what we're do- they're doing. We just make an assumption and a judgment usually yeah. that it can't be good because they look at them on their devices, not being a human or whatever. You judge them. Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Massive judgy pants. Like, and we've all seen that family <laughs> in the cafe who are all sitting on their devices going, oh, look at them. They, they don't talk to one another. <laughs> um, we don't know that they haven't been on, you know, a four hour hike or something together where they've done all their talking that they need, that whatever. Um, so I guess to answer your question, it, there's, there's not a lot of difference, right? Whether you're on your device for learning and then you're on your device for work and then you're on your device for leisure, it can, it all looks the same to the outsider. And that's where having conversations, so having device free dinners, having some time where you um, do a bit of a, not a, a I'm definitely not into digital detox, but um, what people like Tiffany Schlang call it, um, a, a digital Shabbat. So from a Jewish perspective, you know, taking mm-hmm. that, that Sabbath, that time off um, from Friday night until Saturday night that, you know, was device-free. Her book is called 24-6, so rather than 24-7, just having those six days of the week that you are connected. And, and you know, co-view, co-play and conversation. So... Um, while we might all be on devices more than necessarily we would like, can we actually co-play and co-view things um, and then talk about what we're exploring or what we've discovered? So, um, you know, my partner and I might talk about, oh, what are you reading? Because I know he's always on his phone. He's not, you know, fluffing around. He's usually reading something about filmmaking or, you know, the things that he's passionate about. So actually using those experiences to say, well, what, what have you done with devices today? What have you found out? What did you learn? What, what worked? What didn't work? That kind of stuff. Um, and again, thinking about when I was growing up, there was one TV. It was in the lounge room. We all fought over what we were going to watch. Um, my mum and I usually won, and we got to watch E Street on Thursday night <laughs> at 8.30. <laughs> um, and everyone else, like, if they didn't want to watch, they'd have to go and do something else. But it was on, and it was this kind of thing that everyone, whether you were sitting down purposely watching it, you still knew what was happening in East Street because it was kind of happening around you. 
it wasn't happening on a device that you're connected with headphones to and that you're having mm. this very solo experience. So, you know, again, without even turning off or unplugging devices, we can just actually use that really big one that's on most of our walls these days um, with the, you know, 17 different streaming services mm. to say, what can we watch together? Well, how can we create a little family ritual around, you know, Thursday night is maybe not East Street, but I'm sure you could get that on demand somewhere, <laughs> you know, and watch a particular show as a family um, yeah. and work your way through different shows that different people in the family particularly like or whatever. There has to be a show that a whole family could watch these days, surely. Yeah, um, well, this uh, feels like we've got too many choices, uh, to be honest. <laughs> well, we do, right? <laughs> and that's the paradox of choice. If you go to a... Um, an ice cream store and they have 36 flavors it's much more hard and much more <laughs> difficult to choose the flavor than if you have neapolitan and it's like are you the strawberry the yeah. vanilla or the chocolate guy so um absolutely the the on-demand sense of um those services make us quite demanding you know um my my three-year-old will say i want to watch blah and you know she can um yeah, buying that TV was one of my biggest flaws <laughs> this year. Yeah, no, well, we're right there with you, and I'm sure many others are as well. And it's sort of, it's one of these things. And and talking to you, Jocelyn, obviously, it's not the, it's a, not about how to get off it and eradicate it, but rather how do we live with it in a way that's actually more supportive uh, and used as a tool to benefit us uh, or our connection or our communities, rather than um, you know to the detriment uh, of of our personalities or livelihood i guess that's right absolutely and i believe there is that way you know i think i think we have to work hard but there is that middle path jocelyn how can people get in touch with you if they want to know more if they want to get to, um to hear more mm -hmm. about what you're doing i know you do a lot of speaking you're doing um workshops i think you do uh, obviously doing your consults both in in person and also over the over the phone mm -hmm. how do people get in touch with you yeah, really easy. Either my name, Jocelyn Brewer, or Digital Nutrition into your favorite search engine, and I will be the first thing that you find. Um, I'm all over social media as well, so take your pick, except TikTok. I'm not TikToking yet. <laughs> um, but yeah, JocelynBrewer.com, easy. Perfect. Well, thanks very much for joining me, and it's been great to have a chat with you and share the story and the journey and what you're up to. Um, and if you want to get in touch with Jocelyn, we encourage you to do so. And Jocelyn, thanks very much for a really uh, insightful conversation. Total pleasure, Sam. Thank you for inviting me on. No worries. Thanks, Jocelyn. Cheers. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.